Welcome back to the Spoonful of Sugar podcast, which is brought to you in partnership with Farmerica. The title of today's episode is Setting the Record Straight on the White House's Nursing Home Reform Package. I'm John O'Connor from McKnight's, and I'll be co-hosting with TJ Griffin, RPH, who is the Senior Vice President of Long-Term Care Operations and Chief Pharmacy Officer for Farmerica. Our special guest today hardly needs an introduction. Mark Parkinson is the president and CEO of the American Healthcare Association National Center for Assisted Living, which just happens to be the nation's largest long-term care organization. Mark will be joining us shortly. And as an added bonus, we're actually going to have him stick around for a second podcast. Well, hi, TJ. Uh, baseball season is upon us. How are things looking for your Chicago Cubs? You know, it's, uh, you know, with all of our stars gone, uh, we're excited about uh, Suzuki, but, uh, you know, I think it's probably going to be a, a tough year for us. But, you know, Cub fans, we're always optimistic. That's how we that's how we live and breathe life. I think it's part of the package deal, right? It is. Very good. Well, why don't we go ahead and uh, get started? It may be only April, but this has already been quite a year for the long-term care sector. In January, we saw the White House call for nursing home reform. More recently, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine came out with a study asserting the way long-term care is delivered and reimbursed is simply not sustainable. That alone is a lot to unwind. And as the late night ads remind us, but wait, there's more. Last week, CMS announced plans to trim Medicare payments next year to providers by almost a third of a billion dollars. Luckily, we have the right person here to help us navigate these and other pressing issues facing the industry today. Governor Mark Parkinson, thank you for joining us. Hey, John and TJ. Really great to be here with both of you. Absolutely. Now, before we dig in, uh, would you mind briefly just sort of walking us through your, uh, shall we say, unusual journey that got you where you are today? Yeah, we've had, Stacey and I have had an incredibly good and lucky life, uh, and I never would have thought that we would end up running nursing homes or, or me running an association. We met in law school. We got married our second year in law school. We thought we would do that forever. But then I got involved in politics in Kansas and um, ended up running for the Kansas House and the Kansas Senate and somehow succeeded in that. And uh, I found myself touring an assisted living building in which was new in the early 90s in Kansas, in, in, in my Senate district. And I loved it. I thought it was an incredible thing. And I asked Stacy to come over and look at it, and she did. And we decided that night that we wanted to build one assisted living facility. We thought we'd still practice law, and I'd be in the legislature, and we'd be raising our three kids, and we'd have this AL building. Um, as soon as we opened up the AL building, we realized it was a 24-7 deal. And... Um, we basically, you know, I left the legislature, we quit practicing law, and we just focused on our kids and, our, and the AL building. We ended up building six, including skilled nursing facilities, dementia facilities, and AL. We sold to Brookdale in 2006, and that allowed me to get back into politics where, you know, there's that concept in math that if you, you know, multiply two negative numbers, you end up with a positive. I, I made so many mistakes in politics that I ended up as governor, and I, I won't bore your listeners with how that ended up happening, but it happened, and it's just a flaw in the democracy, uh, and I was governor at a really good time to be a governor, which was during the Great Recession, which, which uh I, I love that because my business background from running our buildings, I felt like I kind of knew what I was doing. I didn't run in 2010, um, but the position came open to, for the CEO of ACA Incal, and I got recruited and I came out here. It's now been almost 12 years ago when I've been with ACA for 12 years. And, I've you know, there's been a lot of ups and downs for the sector, for sure. Um, but I've loved my job the entire 12 years. Terrific. So a pretty, pretty straight, normal path. Then. No, uh, no zigs or zags, right? 
Oh, no. And phenomenal. I mean, the, the fact that I became governor is the equivalent of sort of like winning the lottery twice um, with, the, with the path that I took. And sometime when we have more time, I'll, I'll talk about the absurdity of how that all happened. Well, I, I think it was uh, Tommy Lasorda who said uh, the harder you work, the luckier you get. So it's uh, it's no surprise you've been very, shall we say, lucky. Mm-hmm. You certainly earned it. So now when we set this podcast up, uh, we thought we'd be largely focusing on the White House accusations against long-term care operators and give you a chance to set the record straight. And we certainly want to get to that in a moment, but there's been some more water under the bridge since then, as they say. Recently, we saw a 600-page report come out calling for major changes in the way that uh, long-term care is delivered and paid. It's causing quite a stir. Uh, What's your reaction to that report, Governor Parkinson? You know, I've had a, I've had a chance to review summaries of it. I've not read it's a 600 page report. I haven't seen the whole report. There's very thoughtful people that served on the committee that put it together. And it's really just another report that I think confirms what a number of other reports have, have said, which is that we need to adequately fund skilled nursing. There's a place for skilled nursing. We need to adequately fund it. And we need operators that are focused on person-centered care and are doing the right things. And we completely agree with all of that. I really appreciate that the report started with the notion that there is a place for skilled nursing. Some of our critics would like to to abolish skilled nursing. They think that everyone can be taken care of at home. They just don't understand how old and how frail our residents are and that there is and always will be a place for skilled nursing. So I really appreciate that the report starts with that premise. Um, but then it gets into this, the, the recommendations that I think we've all agreed need to be done. And basically, this hasn't changed for the last 20 or 30 years. We need to adequately fund our Medicaid system so that people can receive their cost. Um, we need to make sure they're held accountable so they're not skimping and providing bad care. We need to get the bad operators out and we need to promote and encourage the good operators. And we really need to focus on person-centered care. So I applaud the report, its conclusions. I think our board would be in agreement with virtually every proposal they make. But as the report says, you can't just do one of the things and not the, not the whole thing. So you can't just mandate the staffing and not also do the funding that's called for in the report. And that's what I'm concerned about happening in Washington. I'm concerned about all of the mandates occurring without the funding behind them. Well, if that was a surprise, I think last week's announcement from CMS is probably a real jaw dropper. Essentially, uh, if I read things correctly, uh, the plan is to uh, trim Medicare payments to uh, skilled nursing providers in the next fiscal year by nearly a third of a billion dollars. Um, I'd like to get your, your take on that as well, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, I mean, this is, a, this is more complicated than it would appear by the headlines, because this all has to do with the transformation from the rug system to PDPM. And three years ago, when CMS changed our system to the patient-driven payment model, it was supposed to do it in a budget-neutral way. Um, We knew that it would be very hard for CMS to hit this directly on the head. There's such a big difference between rugs and PDPM. We thought they'd either underpay us or overpay us. We doubted that they would hit it just right. And that's not a criticism, it's just the complexity of completely changing systems. We've now been in this for three years, and it looks like we're getting a little bit more money and budget neutral. So we're not critical of CMS for um, you know, figuring that out and looking at the data and making that decision. We're analyzing whether or not we agree with that, but we're not actually alarmed by that decision. What we are alarmed by is the notion of, of cutting it all at once. Um, mm-hmm. The, you know, we continue to be fighting this pandemic. 
not so much on the clinical clinical side, which right now, you know, for goodness sakes, is in pretty good shape. But we're really fighting on the business side. Uh, all of a sudden, we can't find workers, and that's holding census down. And buildings are starting to close. And you know, basically, every provider is worried about whether or not they're going to be able to continue. And with that backdrop, we don't think that this 4.6% what CMS views as an overpayment should should come out all at once. Um, I'll just, you know, breaking news, we just uh, had a board meeting last night and, and the board believes that the right way for CMS to approach this is through a phase in. So we're going to be advocating um, to CMS, to HHS, and to the White House, not that they don't take the parity adjustment. We understand the rationale behind that but that it's done over a three-year period of time um, to, to allow uh, providers to absorb it uh, and to move forward. If they would do that, what that would mean is that instead of getting a seven-tenths of a percent um, cut um, on October 1 of this year, instead we would get a modest increase of about 2.3 or 2.4 percent. Uh, and we think that given everything that's happening uh, in the sector right now, that's the right thing for CMS to do. Yeah, I was going to say, John, uh, Governor, you know, with everything that's going on in the economy, whether it's inflation or interest rates, you know, I, I think that makes it that's a very sensible approach, because if you put the economy together with what you just described and you have members who are trying to make upgrades like additions, renovations, acquisitions to, you know, so that the good operators can acquire more buildings, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, how are your members dealing with other than staffing, 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 which we all recognize is, is, a, is a problem and we'll probably get to that as well. But, you know, how are they dealing with these other issues like inflation and interest rates? Well, TJ, you're right. I mean, there's just a number of events that have come together that make this the hardest time that it's ever been to operate nursing homes. And I'm just universally hearing that across the country. So there's, we could take any of about six different things and spend the whole podcast on each. Right. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. I mean, it's just how tough it is. Right now, providers are surviving on what they have left over of federal and state money. Uh, and how they're doing depends a lot on what state they're in. Some of the states have had pretty decent Medicaid add-ons that continue during the public health emergency. And so in those states, providers are in a little bit better shape. But even in those states, people are running out of money. And, you know, just to, to focus on one of the problems that you talked about is just let's talk about inflation. You know, I knew that this was going to be a problem, which is that unless you're my age or older and I'm 64, you just don't remember what it was like to live in an inflationary period. The current generation of operators are all people that have lived in deflationary times with declining interest rates. So I've been telling members for the last 12 years, you got to have a plan for when the interest rates turn and when the prices start going up. And unfortunately, we're seeing that now. And, and here's, here's the real problem with inflation. Yes, inflation does eventually raise the market basket for, for Medicare. And yes, in some states, they do eventually raise rates with inflation. But there's like a two or three year time lag. The data is always really, really old. So the, the, the rule that was announced, the payment rule that was announced on Monday, you know, that I just talked about, that was based on a market basket that went back to, to looked at uh, wage costs in 2018. Well, wage costs right now are a heck of a lot different than in 2018. In fact, they're a heck of a lot different than they were last year or the year before that. So 
you know, inflation is a, is a major problem. Interest rates, again, you know, your, your question about interest rates is a really good one. There's a lot of providers out there that haven't really lived in a world where their rate goes up. You know, they, they, they aren't constantly readjust to staying the same or going down. Those people that have not locked in long-term rates uh, have got some real problems coming down the road. Why I've, I've been encouraging people for 12 years, you know, if you can lock in with HUD and get permanent financing, low rate financing, do that. If you can lock in with some other source that, that keeps the rate low, do that. But we, you know, we could go through a list of five or six things that are, are very, very scary. I do think the sector will come out of all of these, but this is a super hard time. Absolutely. You know, TJ, that's a great point. And, you know, especially not just is inflation happening, but look where it's really hitting, you know, energy, food, transportation. I mean, those are those are three big ticket items for a lot of facilities they have to deal with. So it, it's it's not just a punch, but it's a real gut punch in many ways. There is a small and I'm going to put very small uh, benefit d- during inflation, and that's to people that own real estate. Um, and, you know, so a lot of providers own their real estate. Some don't, but, but a lot of them do own their real estate. Uh, and we're going to see some significant increases in those values, um, but it's on paper, you know. So you know, like I'm from Kansas and you got all these farmers that are rich on paper, um, but it will allow some financial flexibility for people that actually own their own real estate. Um, eventually, there will be an increase in values because of inflation. Mm-hmm. Way back in January, which seems like a long time ago, during the uh, State of the Union address, President Biden uh, said some things that were, shall we say, unflattering toward uh, nursing homes. And I just want to give you a chance to sort of respond to it. For example, I, I think he mentioned how care needed to get better, and he sort of took aim at private equity that's involved in the field. In fact, I think uh, GAO is following up on that right now, if, if I read the news correctly this morning. I know that seems like a long time ago, Mark, but yeah. uh, what's uh, HCA's or your your response to, to what was said in the speech? Yeah, I, I think you have to separate the rhetoric around the proposals and the proposals themselves. So if you look at the proposals themselves, there's probably only two that I would say for sure we think are bad ideas. Um, the proposal to have a mandatory minimum staffing is a bad idea. It's a bad idea because the staff isn't out there and CMS doesn't have a mechanism to pay for it, even if it was. And the second really, really bad idea is the idea of increasing civil monetary penalties to a million dollars. I mean, it's just nursing homes don't make a million dollars in a year. Many of them don't make a million dollars in a decade. You know, so if a civil monetary penalty is suddenly a million dollars, you're basically shutting down the building, displacing all. So those are two particularly bad ideas. Everything else is either like, okay, or something that we could work with to, to, I think, make it okay. So our objection really isn't the proposals themselves, other than those two, and we will work on those two very hard. Uh, Our our objection is really to the rhetoric around them um, and the implication that 200,000 people died in nursing homes because of bad care. It's just it's just wrong. And, and it's it's offensive. So we had these people in there fighting like heroes for two years, the first six months, certainly risking their lives. And we really didn't know how deadly COVID was and exactly how it spread and all of that. And they couldn't save all of the people because they didn't have PPE and they didn't have testing and it took a while for the vaccine to develop. The government made some horrible decisions that caused people to die. The notion that our 
providers are responsible for those 200,000 deaths. It's just, it's just, it, you know, it's like if somebody's uh, firemen are fighting a fire and some people happen to die, it's like blaming the firefighters for the deaths in the building. I mean, it's just, it's just unconscionable. And then the second notion that quality is declining, you have to make policy decisions that are based on data. You can't make policy decisions that are based upon anecdotes or single stories of bad care. When you have 15,000 nursing homes out there and millions of people being taken care of, there are going to be some examples of bad care. That's true in, in every part of the healthcare system. You made decisions just based upon really great, you know, a few great outcomes or a few bad outcomes. You really wouldn't be making great decisions. You have to look at the whole data set. And so when I came 12 years ago, we hired David Gifford, who was, I think, the re- one of the most renowned experts on nursing home quality. And we said, let's really focus on the quality measures out there and improve them across the board. Let's work with our members. We have, you know, most of the sector and membership and really work on improving rehospitalizations, you know, really reducing the use of antipsychotics and all of that. And we focused on all of that. And if you look at the 22 quality measures, and if you look at the data from 15,000 buildings, we're better on 19 out of the 22. We're statistically better. So the statement that nursing home quality is declining is factually incorrect. And it just gets frustrating. Um, you know, what are we supposed to, you know, to do? I mean, we're, we're proactively doing everything we can to move these quality measures. And unfortunately, the providers are not getting any credit for it. In fact, they're getting criticized. So, you know, it's, it's discouraging the rhetoric. Um, the proposals I think we can work with, the rhetoric is very discouraging. Governor, you know, I think you just you hit the title right on the head right there. You've been setting the record straight for the last three or four minutes uh, with what you just went through. And, uh, you know, setting the record rhetoric aside, what what do you think are the the two or three biggest misconceptions about long term care sector that we need to set straight, not just with the folks who regulate and legislate, but, you know, with with family and, and friends of the residents that we take care of? What, what are the biggest misconceptions that all of us could help set straight about about long term care? There, there's a number of them on the policy side, the legislators, the members of Congress, and unfortunately, even people in the agencies do not understand how old and how frail our residents are. And so they have this idyllic belief that all of these people could be taken care of at home. All you have to do is walk through any nursing home in America. You know, and, and I always tell the legislators, come at lunch when you see a bunch of folks down you know, in, in, in the eating area, understand that we're taking care of very old and very frail people that need a unique care setting in order to survive. Um, I think that a number of these politicians still believe that, oh, if we just fund home care a little bit more, all these people would not need to live in, in skilled nursing buildings. I think a second conception has to do with, with uh, nursing home quality. This con- constant drumbeat that nursing homes are bad, I think, has caused people to not understand that nursing homes have fundamentally improved, that there's an enormous difference between what a nursing home is now and what it was in the 1980s or even in the 1990s. We now are become much more sophisticated. Many of these are sort of like almost miniature hospitals, particularly on the post-acute side with very sophisticated technology, very sophisticated clinical uh, interventions, and really caring and well-trained um, team members. So, you know, one, one of the things that we like to do the most is just get legislators into our, into our buildings. Um, you can get members of Congress or even folks at the state level to come in and see the folks that we take care of and the kind of care that we're providing 
a lot of these myths disappear. I will tell you one encouraging thing, and we, we do polling from time to time about what does the public think about us? And the, the view is generally negative. But if you ask people that have had an experience with a nursing home, you know, principally one of their loved ones has lived in a nursing home, uh, we have almost a 90% favorability record. So once people see what's going on and, and see what's happening, a lot of these misconceptions um, really disappear. I know you're probably happy and your members were happy to see HHS extend the uh, public health emergency declaration for another 90 days. And I know HCA was very actively involved in making that happen. What are some of your other top legislative priorities right now, Mark? Our top three DC priorities are continuation of the public health emergency. So we were thrilled that that happened um, just yesterday and extends into the middle of um, July. We'll watch the data, uh, and if the data justifies it, we'll be arguing that it get extended for another three months then. Our second priority is um, uh, working on the uh, SNF payment rule, the rule that we talked about at the top, uh, where hopefully we can get a phase in of the parity adjustment. Uh, and then finally, our third federal priority is the Nursing Home Reform Act and making sure that unfunded mandates um, do not end up happening. On top of that, and this has really been fun for me, about five years ago, uh, ACA shifted its focus to say, hey, we're not just going to be involved in D.C. Um, we're going to get involved with our state executives. We have 50 affiliates and really help them and partner with them on state initiatives. And that's gone extremely well. A number of the states have stepped up in 2021, especially in 2022, uh, in providing special funding because of the pandemic. And we continue to spend a lot of time on that. So it's really those four major efforts. Well, we appreciate your leadership, Mark. I think it uh, goes without saying that uh, you're one of the, the, the top advocates in Washington, D.C. of any advocacy group, and we're lucky that you're in ours. So thank you so much. Really appreciate that. That's great. Thank, thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thanks, Governor Parkinson, for joining us today. It's, it's really an honor and, and a privilege to, to talk with you. You bet. We've had so much fun. We're going to have you back for another session. And uh, we hope that uh, the operators will tune in for that. Uh, TJ, are you ready for another round of this? Let's do it. Sounds like a plan. So finally, before we sign off, a special thanks to For America, whose generous support made this presentation possible. To learn more about ways For America can deliver world-class pharmacy services to your organization, we invite you to visit them online at farmerica.com. Along with TJ Griffin, this is John O'Connor wishing you health and happiness. See you next time. Bye, everyone.